Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome back to Burned by Books. I'm your host, Chris Holmes, professional noticer of interesting things, the best job in the world. Working largely from home with a remote learning student reveals the good and the grotesque about institutional schooling. I've been a voyeur into fascinating, fact-filled lectures on European history, beautiful crystalline lessons on chemical reactions, funny, supportive math contests, as well as classes that were and continue to be less useful for the mind than just staring into a fish tank. In a fit of pique after listening to multiple classes of what can only be called the death of high school English, I started a book group for my son and a group of his friends, just and only so that any remaining love of reading and talking about books wasn't covered over by the ashes of a regrettable class. I wanted some matter of theme to bind an assortment of books together, and after pulling in what I thought was a random bunch, I realized that they fit into a category of what might be called the magnificent cruelty and redemption of institutional schooling. We began with the great boarding school novel of the 21st century, Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go, a novel that gets bandied about as a story about clones, but is in reality a book about living together as teenagers in a state of perpetual in loco parentis, and wondering about your meaningfulness to a world that seems to cast your ideas and passions aside. Schooling doesn't come off well in Ishiguro's masterwork. It is vulgar indoctrination into a system of realpolitik that needs these young people to sacrifice themselves to the privileged classes. I couldn't leave them with such a bad taste in their school-age mouths, despite how much they loved the book. So we proceeded to Educated by Tara Westover, to my mind the great memoir of education's revelatory powers. It is an equally, if not surpassingly, brutal story 
but Westover's story of abuse of every kind imaginable in her fundamentalist household, including the constant and deadly use of child labor in a horrifyingly dangerous junkyard, sets the scene for how education, at its best, can cut through even the densest of ideologies. Westover's utter intoxication with each new revelation about all the cruel lies and obstructions that were the core of her family's version of homeschooling shows a mind being set free, loosed in a world where education can sometimes mean liberty. The books that will follow in this informal syllabus include magnificent recent entries into what on previous shows I've called the campus novel. The Secret History by Donna Tartt for a taste of the dangerous cultism of college classrooms. Marisha Pessel's Special Topics in Calamity Physics for an introduction to a cunning and precocious teen narrator who draws on seemingly banal lessons to solve a rather adult murder. Susan Choi's Trust Exercise gives us the combination of the uber-drama of an arts high school and one of the great narrative switcheroos in recent fiction. And finally, a fiction so horrible as to be true, Colson Whitehead's The Nickel Boys, a revolution in the campus novel that unburies the literal physical bodies of black boys dehumanized by institutions that pretended education while offering up new forms of slavery. Today's guest on the show, Ellie Eaton, has written a wonderful new addition to the campus novel. Her novel, The Divines, should be next on your bedside table. It also feels like a gift when the author from a novel you love turns out to be just as smart and funny and introspective as the work she's produced. That is absolutely the case with Ellie Eaton. I'm excited for you to hear her speak about her debut novel and the cruelty and necessity of school. Let's start the show. Welcome back to Burned by Books. It's such a pleasure to welcome Ellie Eaton to the show. Ellie is a freelance writer whose work has appeared in The Guardian, The Observer, and Time Out. Former writer-in-residence at a men's prison in the UK, she holds an MA in creative writing from Royal Holloway, University of London, and was awarded a Kerouac Project residency. Born and raised in England, she now lives in Los Angeles with her family. Most importantly for the show today, she is the author of the debut hit novel, The Divines. The Divines takes place at an all-girls boarding school in England and follows the story of Josephine, known as Joe at school and Sephine as an adult. Sephine married and thousands of miles from St. John the Divine School in Los Angeles with her husband and daughter, recounts the foundational moments of her teen years, including her intense and fraught friendships with girls in and out of St. John's. The Divines, as they are known, are the children of privilege, and like the best school novels, and perhaps the process of real schooling itself, they build a cruel and absolute hierarchy via which their peers are organized, esteemed, and or alienated. 
prompted by the haunting memory of a terrible accident at the school. Sephine combs through her recollections of those formative years and wonders what precisely was true about her understanding of her relationships with peers and antagonists. The result is a book that is as smart and probing about the cruelties and subtle graces of teen life as the best of the campus novels. Ellie sugarcoats nothing, whether it is the fallibility of our strongest memories, the secrets we keep from our loved ones, or the ways in which privilege and its antithesis blinds us to the lives of others. I was utterly absorbed by this brilliant debut, and I know you will be as well. Welcome, Ellie Eaton. Hi, thank you for that wonderful introduction. It's a pleasure to have you here, and I wanted to um, to start with a conversation about the very beginning of the novel, which I quite love and sets uh, a thrilling and, and terrifying tone that sort of hangs over the rest of it. It's a pitch-perfect scene of surreal horror, and it sets the pathos for everything that comes next. The fall of the shunned student Jerry Lake from a dormitory window is part Wes Anderson absurdum, part Lord of the Flies teen tribalism, and part secret history killer mysticism. Would you be willing to read a little bit of that opening? Yeah, absolutely. Jerry Lake looked like a bird with a broken wing, something small and green and feathered, lying there in the middle of the lawn, a budgerigar. One of her knees was bent, the back of her hand cast across her brow in the closing moment of a routine. Very dramatic, typical Jerry. Her tights were ripped, her plumes ruffled, sequins scattered, her ice skates landed beside her on the grass. The younger years thought it was part of our dares, a joke, a prank. Marvellous, they called out, clapping. They hung out of dorm windows and pyjamas and smoked, waiting for the punchline. After a while, we crawled from our various hiding places, the bushes, the boiler house, the ha-ha, the groundskeeper's shed, the vestry, the orchard, the gym, cloaked and hooded as tradition dictated, our dresses slashed at the seam, barefoot. We formed a circle around Jerry like a coven. Jerry was in her leotard, of course, her ponytail still rolled into its neatly gelled bun, hand across her forehead in that pantomime pose. Woe is me, playing dead. By then, we were sick of the endless tantrums and sulking, her door-slamming histrionics, the crying wolf. No one thought to call an ambulance or alert our housemistress. In our defence, there wasn't a drop of blood. Very funny, Geraldine, we said, arms crossed beneath our cloaks, our voices high and clipped. Thank you so much. And this... And this prologue, we enter into it in medias race, and we're given these sort of uh, wonderful granular details about the the grounds of this place, and then just hints of, you know, a terrible relationship with between these girls. Um, why did you want to start us here, and how comfortable did you feel throwing us into the middle of this world? I'm not. I- I know people have mixed feelings about prologues, but I 
quite enjoy having a glimpse into the future when I start a book. Um, and I think I was talking to a, a scriptwriter the other day, and we were talking a bit about David Lynch, who I'm a huge fan of. And and I think she was comparing this opening scene to a bit like the the opening moments of Blue Velvet. Mm. And I agree. And I was think, I've been thinking about that a lot recently. What I wanted to show was a bit of the rot beneath the surface. Um, because I think there is this sense that boarding schools are kind of, I don't know, romanticised a lot in culture. And particularly, you know, when you look at Harry Potter mm-hmm. and, and books like that. And so I wanted to show, you know, much the same way that David Lynch in those opening scenes sort of drops beneath the white picket fence into the ground and you hear the clacking sound of those insects beneath the mud moving around. I wanted to show just this moment of kind of ugliness and and, and brutality right from the get-go so that you knew what you were dealing with wasn't going to be this very um, picturesque version of what a you know jolly holly, hockey sticks boarding school life might look like. <laughs> this book definitely isn't that. So I guess it's that that idea of playing with um, the idea of institution and you know and how we look up to them, but really there's this sort of um, sort of darkness beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. Was it always a, a boarding school in your mind that was going to be the the setting for the divines? I mean, I th- yes, for lots of reasons. In the um, the very seed of the of the novel um, came from returning to England. As you mentioned, I live in LA now, and I would you know fly back each summer and visit family and friends. And I was in the car and happened to be driving near the town where my sister and I had gone to school, and we'd hmm. both been pupils at um, an all girls boarding school in Oxfordshire, and. I knew that the school had been sold and sort of taken apart, but I'd never been back, not once after I left school. So curiosity got the better of me. And not unlike the narrator of my novel, I kind of drove around the town, really struggling to recognise it anymore. My tennis courts had been concreted over into um, sort of a parking lot and the gym had gone and, and all of the older buildings were now um, kind of modern apartments um so housing and there was this one lone monument to the school which was the school chapel which i presume was protected because of its age um but had been turned into a dental surgery oh that's a real detail oh my goodness that is a real detail i know and my poor husband just like watched in horror as i persuaded the receptionist to let me in uh i think I think she must have had experience of old girls returning and, and asking to look look at the surgery. But what was so odd about it was that, you know, she took me, you know, through the chapel and I sat in this area that was a waiting room but was um used to be where the altar servers, you know, would sit and where the um you know, there was the really heavy stone pulpit was still there and the organ was in the back and the stained glass windows and they had just dropped in these little booths where the dentists were because it was this kind of really uncomfortable wine of dental equipment and yet in my mind I could hear the church organ because so little had changed and I think it was sitting there that I just had that very visceral flashback to mm-hmm. what it felt like to be in a teenage body and I think 
a boarding school novels felt like this perfect opportunity to talk about teenage sexuality and the sort of weird heady power that friendships we have at that age hold over us and you know it's the way the rules you're all stuck in this very very tight community and that I think gives a sort of natural tension to any books about um about boarding schools and I like that there's a uh, at least an acknowledged commonality of the pain of dental surgery to teenage years <laughs> like that nerve it doesn't take much and you like oh the wince at the thought of it I know. <laughs> and what must the patients think when they're having these uh intense drillings <laughs> it's so odd when you're looking at i mean because the, the stained glass windows were kind of beautiful but you just think like also quite terrifying <laughs> 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 it's very if you have any kind of drugs it would be quite wonderful <laughs> and you already feel a little bit like you're too close to um you know shuffling off the mortal coil when you have a drill in your mouth that that doesn't i'm sure that doesn't help <laughs> oh i hate the um so saint john the divine is a is a recognizable kind of classic british school as you describe it but it it also has wonderful and somewhat problematic quirks the clique of girls that the that rule the school's social scene refer to each other by the approximate boys equivalent to their given names so for example josephine is joe they wear oversized men's dress shirts and generally appear to co-opt the tropes of the patriarchy to wield power at the school were you intentionally playing with the irony of a school culture that is both under the thumb of misogyny and also full of girls wielding the power of patriarchal tradition? Yeah, I think actually power is the exact word I'd use to describe this book. So much of the story is about who has power and how do they use it. And, you know, the interesting thing about girls of that age is that they – do have an incredible power. They're, they're kind of just coming into themselves. They have this extraordinary confidence in en masse. I don't mm -hmm. I think less so individually. But there is something truly terrifying about a pack of teenage girls walking towards you down the high street <laughs> in a way. No, they intimidating. It's that thing of like just, you know, not care, particularly when they're together, like not caring what anyone else thinks, yet you know they absolutely care what they think about each other. Um, and it made me think when I was writing it about the traditional figure of the coquette in literature, which is something I play with a bit, you know, in that this is a very unique period of their life where they know that they're incredibly attractive and um, and are intriguing to people and they feel empowered. And in this book, particularly in a boarding school environment where they have, you know, privilege in terms of their education and money and you know they they tread all over their teachers it's not as if the institution mm -hmm. is very good at, at controlling them so I wanted to play with the idea of the coquette and and I also simultaneously was um I mean I've had a, a fascination with queendoms I suppose and how matriarchies work and when I was writing the book I became intrigued by the idea of what divine means as a word and was reading a lot of um, Robert Graves and, and thinking about Greek mythology. And it seemed to me that, like, you know, our origin stories um, are, are populated with powerful women. You know, if you think about the Amazons and, you know, how they're, you know, you, 
the, the line of descent ran through the mother and men were doing the household tasks and the Amazons were fighting and fierce and, you know, men feared and adored the matriarch. Mm. And yet at some point that changes. And I think it's a similar thing with these girls. Like I think they're incredibly powerful at this moment in time. But the reality is when they leave school, that power dissolves and they're not destined to be leaders themselves but the wives of ceos and politicians and bankers and so it's a very you know that's much like the coquette i think like her Mm -hmm. power ends as soon as she is married off and so i really really wanted to talk about how how small this window is i think so one of the things that you do with that power that those girls have, which I think is is just the right instinct when you're when you're setting it in a in a boarding school such as this, is you almost kind of push the teachers and in loco parentis figures out to the very, very periphery of their experience. At times it doesn't even feel they're there. If they're there, they're to be, as you say, trammeled over um, and shown kind of visions of the power of these collectives of of younger girls. Um, and I wonder what you thought thought of um, either from your own experience um, living at a place where you do have these figures supposedly of authority, but then in having a novel where they really are kind of acting off screen? Well, I mean, I think my memory of the teenage experience and one that I, and part of the reason that I think the book is is shaped like that is that um, the dominant figures in our lives at that period really aren't our parents. Um, um, I don't think so. I think for, particularly for girls, it's the the friendships you make mm-hmm. are the things that are on a day to day basis define who you are. Um, and that pendulum swing of popularity, you know, who you're friends with one day and then that feeling of being rejected um, is so terrifying. And I don't think that um, teachers, headmistresses, parents, play the same role in our lives and 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 I think this is even more so in the in the case where these girls have been completely removed from their home lives I mean their parents Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. don't feature at all and I, I think that probably is true to the boarding school experience I think you learn to be self sufficient because you've got no choice you don't have your parents there to go back to at the end of the night and talk through the things that have happened to you in the day and help you process it. You you are entirely left your own devices to process everything that's happening to you. And I think when you're a teenager, there's a lot going on. I mean, it's <laughs> driven by hormones, but I think, you know, g- teenage girls can be particularly cruel. They're a, I mean, not all, and funny and compassionate and, you know, they are everything, but they're everything at this sort of very heightened level. I feel like there's no, middle ground with teenagers. No, I I agree entirely. And I think it's one of the reasons I weirdly think of uh, Lord of the Flies as kind of a school novel. It's just a kind of truer sense of of schools kind of um, concentration of teenage interaction and how the cruelty and humor of it and hierarchies kind of meet themselves out and just given in this kind of nth stage of all of those aspects of of young a young person's life. I totally agree. And you know, I was thinking um, when I was writing this book. I had this anxiety, I suppose, that I was telling a particularly British story. And 
I wondered how it would translate in America. And what's been fantastic about the reception is that everyone recognizes <laughs> their own experience. It's not specific to Britain. And I think there was a, there's a scene that I include in the book which describes this cruel teenage thing of putting someone in Coventry, which I don't think you use the same phrase, but it's where you essentially no. just stop. You stop, <laughs> you stop speaking to someone. This mm. used to be something at school you would put someone in Coventry and they wouldn't know why but all of a sudden no one was talking to them and they'd ask them the question and no one was, would respond and it's a, this sort of freezing out it is such a cruel way of punishing someone <laughs> it's just a, but I think there are equivalents over here of you know not sitting at a certain table when you eat your lunch I guess I mean I don't know what the American equivalent of putting in Coventry is but I'm sure well, I think I think freezing out the the language yeah. you gave it is definitely a, a thing here and, and would be prevalent at even sort of kind of uh, basic American high schools, even when they're not living there. Um, there's still that aspect of how you, you wield that social power. Yeah. Um, the as you say, it's a it's a loaded subject matter. The boarding school for a British writer, and there's mm. a big legacy of of books that have grappled with it. Some kind of heralding it, some kind of tearing it down. Um, and then there's the the real history of institutional brutalization and abuse. That's a, un, unfortunately a big part of the history of those schools. Um, much of the direct abuse that happens in in the divines is off campus. Um, but there's a profound sense of, I mean, what you've already described as a cruelty that pervades, um, the girls' lives. And, you know, this has to do with what you were saying about teenagers, but do you feel like the institution itself, uh, kind of concentrates and elevates how that cruelty is meted out um, when you're uh, kind of living completely away from your parents? Or is it just that we see it more clearly um, in a in a kind of boarding school situation? I mean, I think it's a, a little bit of both. I think that cruelty is there for all teenagers in the same way that the, the, the beautiful bits of being a teenager are there across countries, across ages but I do think there is something particular to the boarding school experience which heightens that um, because there's no escape you can't go home to your bedroom at the end of the day you are essentially trapped in that situation um, with nowhere else to go and and I think maybe what I try and talk about in the book is how those institutions use the ritual and the and the pageantry of boarding school life um, to create the sensation that the world of school is more real than anything that is happening outside of the school gates. Mm -hmm. Because you know, I think, that, and I think that's intentional. And I think you know, if you look at schools like um, Eton in in Britain, you know, one of the most famous boarding schools in the world, you know, they have these incredibly beautiful moments of of um, of pageantry where, you know, I think it's on the 4th of June, they wear these sort of floral crowns on their heads that they've made and they boat and they look very, very beautiful from the outside. But I think anything that's old and beautiful in Britain is often a way to um, buttress and protect privilege. Mm. And 
And, and so I think they turn a blind eye to the, to the crueler things that are happening in the school in order to protect the system and to keep these girls inside of this bubble. They let these other things go. So, you know, the, bull, the horrible bullying of Jerry um, and the relationship with the townies, all of these things, you know, are kind of ignored by the adults in the novel to a certain extent. And and in some ways, I feel like the th- there's a sense that gets passed down that some level of of brutality is part of the process of kind of yeah. securing a place within the the privileged society. That it's not just education, but it is the kind of breaking down of um, these young people. I know that uh, the journalist Alex Renton's uh, book Stiff Upper Lip is a really <laughs> Um, an incredibly probing look into the ways in which parents and um, school heads ignore these things that are going on right underneath their noses because it is seen as part of a, a process. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I haven't read that particular book, though. I think um, it's one I'm going to search out. But when I was writing the book and then reflecting back on my own school days and doing research, I did come across this phrase, boarding school syndrome, which I I don't think I'd ever heard before, but it is a very real thing. And and in one hand, you sort of roll your eyes because you're like, well, come on, you know, this is a syndrome that pertains to a very, very privileged bubble of people, which is true. But But when I started looking at the list, you know, it says, you know, what are the symptoms of boarding school syndrome? And, and I was, ticking them off when I was thinking about my character <laughs> I mean I think it's extraordinary it was sort of you know difficulty asking for help and you know compartmentalizing your life and low self-esteem and like a need to control and obsessive behavior and it was as if they were describing Josephine in the novel hmm. and so so for that for me was just this sort of I mean, it was a it was a good arrow that I was onto something that that was true, um, but it did make me think about how you know the damage that these institutions can do and the legacy they leave. And um, have you uh, read Orwell's essay, uh, "Such Such Were the Joys"? No, I haven't. Oh, Matt, I mean, I reread it again recently, and it's terrifying it's his his experience at a prep school so this is the precursor the school that would help get you into Eton Mm. or Harrow or wherever you might for like middle-aged students middle school age or eight or nine oh god I think I have a daughter who's eight and the idea of her being (laughs) in one of these institutions is horrifying but you know he describes the punishments you would receive for wetting the bed the public shaming um, Mm. and the beatings and, you know, the food was like abysmal. And I think all of these things are probably quite true to boarding school experience. It's kind of barbaric. And then, you know, but then he also talks about the flip side of it and he calls it, um, you know, what you come away from those schools is this sort of heightened sense of confidence because you've had to exist on your own from a terrifyingly young age. Hmm. You um, you are shaped and formed in a way that you've learned the language and you've learned the rules of how to survive in, the, in that particular class bubble. I think he calls it a confidence trick 
um, to give the impression that you knew more than you did. So that, oh, yes. you know, when, you, when you then later apply to Cambridge or Oxford, you know how to impress people. You know how to hold yourself. So it was so fascinating to me. I highly recommend reading that essay. It's, it's just brilliant. I'm absolutely going to seek it out. I'm fascinated by that and and that sort of competence trick. Um, the I, I can't remember for the life of me the name of it, but there's this terrifying memoir of an American writer who has um, a British father who, when he's about that age, maybe nine or ten, um, he's told that they're going on a trip to visit family in in England, and he's dropped off at one of these schools without having been told. That that that's what's going to happen and left there and doesn't see his parents again until Christmas time. Um, and I just cannot imagine what, you know, the psyche of a child would do um, with, with an event like that. Yeah, that's, that's pretty terrible. I mean, I always feel a slight sense of guilt whenever I am hypercritical of, of boarding schools because, you know, when my parents made the decision to send my sister to a boarding school, they, to my sister and I to boarding school, they, you know, they genuinely felt they were making the right decision mm-hmm. for us. I had gone to a school where I was only one of five girls. So there weren't enough girls in the school I went to to make up a sports team. And I think they were like, well, this would offer you a kind of more worldly view. You know, and I, I suppose they just couldn't have predicted that the school that I went to was so far from worldly. I mean, we just, <laughs> I was thinking back to the idea of like, what was going on politically you know, during the time period I write about in The Divine, which is like the late 90s, and, you know, the Berlin Wall was coming down, like Dolly was cloned, the web was invented, and none of those things mattered. It's huge seismic shifts in society, and they're just obsessed with themselves, aren't they? which is how these institutions work, I think. Yeah, and and you know they the farthest they can see is the outside wall of the school itself, and that's and that's the institution. But that's also teenagers; they really yes. have no ability to think outside of that very small bubble of relationships and place. Yeah. Um, far be it from them to uh, go and find some rubble from the from the Berlin Wall. Um, so the novel runs as this kind of great split screen with the 1990s in England in uh, Sephine's past and then present day Los Angeles with some scenes of very, very cold Chicago thrown in. Um, In many ways, these places are as polar opposite as I could think of in terms of cultures and climates, and they more or less mirror your own um, national identities. How did those places and cultures allow you to work through Sephine's character? It's really, really useful, I found, as a writer, um, not being in England when I started to think about writing a book that is so particularly British. I came across that Calvino quote recently about how, you know, at arriving at each new city, a traveller finds a past of him, a bit of himself that he did not know he had. You know, that idea of that when you're separate from the place that you've come from, you are able to discover it in a new way. And I definitely found that to be true for my own experience of writing about Britain, Mm -hmm. because what I hadn't anticipated moving to America is how foreign I would feel. I felt like, well, you look, you kind of look like us and 
the accent's a bit different, but we speak the same language. And then you realized, I realized quite quickly when I was making friends here that I didn't share the same cultural language. You know, you're not watching the same TV shows. You don't have the same high school experience. You don't have these sort of cultural touch touch points to talk about. Mm. And so I did feel quite alien, I think, for, for a while when we moved to America. And then slowly you become absorbed into a culture and England started to feel more unusual to me so that when I return I noticed issues of say class in a way that that was just normal before Mm -hmm. and I would use these phrases that are very you know commonly used in Britain like um I was talking to um Sarah Perry about this yesterday but there's a phrase in Britain called um that you know you say don't get above yourself you know like know your place and that idea is just um, bizarre, I think, to a lot of Americans, because the whole point of the American dream <laughs> is getting above yourself. <laughs> like that's the that's the game. That's the game, right? You you want to get above yourself, and whereas in Britain the the class divide is so extreme, and it manifests in a way that is so particular and dangerous. I think that I. I found that in America, the view of, the, of Britain and the class divide was almost kind of comical. It was a very like Jeeves and Worcester approach to society. <laughs> and then when I started to see people like Boris Johnson in power, you suddenly think, like, hang on a second. <laughs> These people that are coming from largely from exclusive private boarding schools are our CEOs, they're running our banks, they're in high positions in the BBC, they're in the highest levels of government. And what does that say about our society? And it really started to to worry me in a way that I don't think it, I would have been able to get that perspective had I not been living in America. And you picked sort of a, a place in America to come where, like, for example, when I visit friends in L.A., I often feel quite alien um, yeah. to it as though it is a different country and a, and having different rules. So you, on one hand, you pick this part of the United States that's so almost like sine qua non. But in the same time, I think what you're talking about in the boarding school experience is itself a very, it's a minority experience. It's its own set of rules. So in a way, they're a nice match for each other because they are both of a place but not of a place at the same time. Absolutely. And I think in a way that the scenes in the book that surround the school are, are, are visually quite grubby and dour and and kind of tired. The town is exhausted and, and on its knees. And then, you know, L.A., is many things, but uh, one of the things it is it's very light filled and mm-hmm. full of sunshine and sparkly. I suppose not not all that's valley, but like you know, there's this perception of LA being a quite a sparkly place, and and I liked playing with those two ideas of place and looking at how different they were. Yeah, you're you're hurting me in a very personal way right now with your bright and sparkly <laughs> conversation as I sit in Ithaca, New York, which is the direct opposite of that. But <laughs> um, so, I mean, class is, I think, for any uh, 
boarding school or campus novel a, a crucial component to it, at least the the good yeah. ones. Um, and the you know this has very much to do with the nature of friendships in the divines. And the Latin motto of um, Saint John the Divines is um, "Memor amici," remember friends. And this is a a novel that's distinctly concerned with the nature of female friendship. Ironically, um, Sefin's friendships are all fairly damaged or damaging. Um, and the one exception is her strange friendship with what's called Townie, um, someone not a divine, named Lauren, whose life and relationship to school couldn't be more different than Sefin's. And boarding school novels, you know, take up this issue in, in, in different ways, but I felt like you handled it in a really unique way with this relationship um, to Lauren. How did you decide that that would be a really pivotal part of your character's understanding of her time in school and of the nature of female friendships? Oh, thank you. I mean, it's a great question. And I'm so fond of Lauren as a character. Mm -hmm. I feel in a way she's the one that I root for. Like you want her to, to have a happy ending if those things <laughs> exist. And um, yeah, it was, she was an important character for me to write about because the nature of those schools is not just about who they protect and who gets to live in those very privileged bubbles, but also who they keep out. Mm, yeah. And so yeah. who is it that's the other side of the fence? And, and I wanted to look at um, a character like Lauren and see how she reacts to the school. And she's, I mean, she's a tragic figure in many ways because she is smarter than any of the divines. She's fiercer. Um, she really knows who she is in some ways, in a way that, that certainly Joe in the book doesn't. And, and I think Joe is quite in awe of her because Joe's family life is pretty chilly, for, for want of a better <laughs> word. And, and Lauren's, while being much more complicated for, for reason, lots of reasons, but, you know, partly to do with her sexuality, but she has a very um, loud, noisy family life. You, you get the feeling that she's part of a tribe and that they will fight with each other, but they will also protect each other fiercely. Um, and she's a deeply loyal to them. Yet, you also know that she'll never really be able to escape the town, or you think she might not ever be able to escape the town. And yet, Joe, when when the school goes up in flames, can walk away with it with such ease. She has this invisible safety net, net mm -hmm. of money and, and connections, which means she can choose to completely reinvent herself. And I don't think Lauren will ever be afforded that same opportunity. She's, you know, beholden to her class and to her family, I think. And that's what seems to be part of the attraction to Joe is that um, she can, it, it almost is like an aura around the divines that they have that protective cocoon. And mm -hmm. she knows, um, you know, for all the you know, the positive things about having that tribe of a, a family, she knows that they can't afford her um, that cocoon of privilege and that any mistake she makes um, could be, you know, fatal to her life going forward. And she sees her brother and she sees other people having made 
these mistakes and how they're not able to kind of um, really claw their way out of them. Absolutely. The stakes are so much higher for Lauren. There's the, you know, a scene where she is going to her her brother's girlfriend's or partner's house and um, takes something out of the bin and smears it on the door. And you think, oh, what would happen if the police caught them in that moment? And you just know that the the repercussions for Lauren would be so much worse whether you you just sort of assume that Joe's family would just buy her out of that situation in some way or yeah. she'd get a slap on the wrist and nothing more and I think it's those small moments where you really realize like the role that class plays in our society yeah and, and you mentioned um Lauren's uh sexual sexuality and it's a it's impossible to to extricate that from what their what her friendship with Joe is about and and how it works itself out um you know everything is kind of marvelously tangled um and you know Sefin's own sexual encounter with Lauren's brother then kind of distorts her ability to even see her friend in the same way um you know class is is clearly a part of that um distortion of a friendship but also these questions of um, a young person's sexuality and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that yeah I mean I think one of the the things about writing a book set in the 90s is that you know you're operating in quite a different world this sort of era pre-internet feels very very different to the world that we live in now and I was reading um, a boarding school novel by Emily Layden that's recently um, been, I think it was published last week, and it's set in a contemporary American boarding school. But one of the elements of it I found so fascinating was that there are openly um, gay couples in her book in a way that that would never have been possible to write about in The Mm -hmm. Divine. And I think it was important for me to show how complicated those friendships are with girls at a young age because someone like Lauren is is working out who she is as is Joe but in very very different ways I think and how at that age in particular the the blurring between what is an obsessive friendship and what is love and what is lust those things as you say like weave in and out of each other as you struggle to like find out who you are um and then and I think setting it in the 90s meant that it was very very difficult for Lauren to say this is who I am mm-hmm. and so everything happens under this sort of code of silence of assumptions and so it kind of it's a much murkier world, I think. I, I, I sincerely hope that um, one of the few benefits of social media these days is that young women feel more empowered than they would have done back then. I mean, I know that we all hate social media, but, you know, I don't think Joe and Lauren could have Googled anything back then. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. Know. So, like, where where do you look to then if you want to see you want to see someone who's reflecting your inner experience? Where do you go? And and sadly, Lauren really has nowhere to go but her friendship with Joe, and it and it they don't feel the same way ultimately. So, which is sort of tragic, I think. Um, and I think you're. 
I think you're right about social media and, and, and it's, bo- it's a both and, um, it would be, um, a, of course, a place that they could, you know, look for answers about how one could define themselves and see visually people expressing themselves in incredibly different ways and performing aspects of gender and sexuality in such a diversity um, of means. And at the same time, there's still that kind of unbelievable misogynistic and patriarchal impulse that sort of shows itself to young girls in particular as look this way, act this way, be this this one person, even as there's this incredible like polyphony of voices and and faces that we see. Yeah. Yeah, as the mother of a girl, it is sort of terrifying. You don't know you I know that I can't shut my daughter off from that. Like it, it, it she'll find it one way or another yet yet so how do you teach a young woman to navigate that world with any sense of normality i mean you know the internet is like not a normal place is it Mm. and when adults can't navigate it like i (laughs) i in no way claim to have like the ability to turn off and on my relationship to the internet and if we can't do it then you know uh, god help the children oh (laughs) i the campus novel as a, a genre is a it's a real favorite of mine, uh, and it sweeps up all manner of books into its ken, including everything from Harry Potter, which you already noted as a as an archetypal <laughs> campus novel, to Donna Tartt's The Secret History, to more recent and playful entries like uh, Nell Zink's Mislaid and Susan Choi's My Education. Is this a genre that you go to for your own reading pleasure, and do you have favorites? so interesting i was thinking about my um why for so many years i absolutely would not read a campus novel i was so resistant to the genre and yet i ended up writing one (laughs) i I suspect that growing up in england as a child i devoured enid blyton books there's a series called mallory towers um about a, a cliffside boarding school and, and it, you know, it's full of like daring do and it's classic British kids stories, I think. Hmm. And then there was a play that that we used to put on at school called Daisy Pulls It Off, which was a sort of similar thing about you know, posh girls boarding schools. You know, and and I think having lived through a boarding school experience, like, you don't need a novel. <laughs> I do not want to read a. I cannot think of anything worse than reading about that one. So for years, I mean, and there are these iconic books on the subject. I mean, to my shame, I have not read prep. Mm. And, and so when I started writing this book, I knew that I had a choice. I could either read every book going or or not. And I decided that I was not going to read campus novels for fear that they would weave their way into my own book. Read on the side it had been done and not what to do it. Um, and so the real joy of having the book out in the world is that I can read all the campus novels. And I think one of the joys of the past year has been connecting with other writers who are writing in a similar area or about similar themes. Um, 
there is a debut novelist um, called Micah Nemerova. I don't know if you've come across these violent delights. No, but I, I that came up on social media, of all things, as something that I should be interested in. It is a wonderful book. It's, it's truly one of those great campus novels and talks about teenage obsession in a way that I completely was sucked into. So um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it is called a campus novel, although it's so much of the action happens outside of the campus that I, I find it hard to put it in that box, but it is an incredible read. And um, Micah recommended a book by Shirley Jackson called Hangs a Man, which mm. I then ate up. And I've actually never read any Shirley Jackson before that, so it was my first Shirley Jackson novel. And I, it's I've Shirley not heard of that one. Oh, it's it's about um, a young woman who Natalie who goes to a liberal arts college, and at heart it's sort of her descent into madness, and so you find it very hard to tell what's real and what's not real, and she forms this very like potent relationship in the book with a fellow student, and then you start to question whether that was all imagined. It's completely absorbing. Hmm. Um, and so I think what I've loved recently about campus novels is that they take the trope of, of a, a campus situation and turn them on the head, although that Shirley Jackson obviously is, isn't contemporary, but um, also like books like Brandon Taylor. Oh, yeah, real life. Which is just, it's so, what I, what I don't want to see is my own experience of school reflected back at me, I suppose. And what's great about the books I'm talking about is that they look at it from a completely different perspective in a way that shows you the world and the peculiarities of campus life from a vantage point that is is so unusual and um tragic or not tragic or you know i think brandon's taylor just and there were certain points where reading it where i just sort of gasped out loud and you just cringe and, and start to wonder if you've been the person in the books doing and saying things mm-hmm. that you you um later realize are just just inherently awful <laughs> yeah it's a brutal if you're being self-reflective as you read it it's a it's a brutal book especially for someone you know i'm kind of totally steeped in in that world and it felt um in many ways pointed appropriately in my in my direction and it's i mean it's a beautiful book it's a devastating book and as you yeah. say it's i really do think this is a heyday for these novels because they've now people are are given license to say oh yeah there's a lot of other experiences of these kinds of campuses that have never made it into what we think of as the sort of classic yeah. version yeah Actually, and one of the things I felt very conscious of writing my book was how white the world I was writing about was. And it was a tricky one because I, it's part of the point of the novel. I want to show how these institutions operate and, and who they exclude. And so for that reason, there is one black character in the book called Kwambo Kamasuba, and she is the African exchange student. And she's treated a bit like a sort of pet by the other girls. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was thinking about it, if it, about the book and how how one might view that. And, and it, it's uncomfortable for me to write, but it felt important to show how how institutional racism operates from the only vantage point that I could. Um, 
and I would love to have fleshed her out as a character or, or been able to speak for her, but it just didn't feel like a story that I had um, any ability to write, nor should I be writing. But it, it's a strange thing when you're writing about the world of privilege because it really, really underlines the groups of people that are excluded from those worlds. Yeah, and I and I do think that is the the fundamental thing that keeps me drawn back to that genre is it, the people outside of the walls of those places and what it and what it means for them. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons why Never Let Me Go is one of my favorite campus novels because the the kind of exploration of who is inside and who is outside and what is the purpose of institutional schooling and and how does it affect the the people whose lives never um never reach the inside of those gates i think is is put on kind of remarkable and cruel display um i've been sort of asking all my uh, guests during the pandemic about their sort of preservation reading, like uh, things that are keeping you sane or making you able to forget the fact that we can't walk outside to anything um, even kind of vaguely like the normal. Do you have yeah. things that have been kind of getting you through? Thankfully, I was not one of the people that was afflicted by an inability to read over this period. Mm -hmm. I the I gasp when I see on Twitter or like talk to friends who say they just haven't been able to concentrate on a book because I honestly think getting lost in words has saved me. I think me too. I I might have gone mad if I hadn't been able to read. Although I will do a little side note and say that I think we also have a shared passion for the show Money Heist, which has also <laughs> we do. <laughs> has also got me through this like very strange year. And, uh, I love that show. <laughs> it's I keep pressing it on people and whenever I mention that it's a dubbed Spanish show, you can see I can see them thinking, well I'm not going to watch that. <laughs> and I please watch it. It's so brilliant. You will love the professor. I love it so much. Oh, I think it just has everything that you could want in distraction television and done at like the highest level. It is spectacular. I cannot wait for the final season to come out. <laughs> Me and neither. we were so desperate to watch it that we watched the truly terrible making of. Oh, no, <laughs> so, I didn't know that existed. Oh, it is hilarious. It's, just, <laughs> it's so funny. It's just terribly, it's just, I can't describe other than say it's one of the cheesiest bits of documentary <laughs> making I've ever seen, but it's also brilliant. Anyway. I will move that conversation to the side. Yeah, um, books that I have loved. Um, well, again, on the theme of um, the absolute joy of connecting with other writers during this period has meant that um, I've done a little bit of book swapping. Um, so I was lucky enough to read an early copy of Milk, Blood, Heat by Don Teal W. Moniz. don't know... If you've seen that short story collection around. But I've it is, seen it sort of everywhere, but I know nothing yeah. about it. It is wonderful. She writes like a dream. And I think it really spoke to me in terms of the teenage female experience. Um, and so perfectly gets you under the skin of teenage girls. It's just I highly recommend it. It's all their stories are all set in Florida and um, for a while I was living for three months in Orlando, so it ticked lots of boxes for me, but that one is wonderful. And then um, 
What's the other one? Oh, Tori Peters and I swapped books. So she, she sent me a copy of um, Detransition Baby, which is so fascinating and hilarious and heartbreaking in so many and incredibly smart. It's a really, really wonderful book about a version of motherhood that I'd never thought about before to my shame and is just fantastically written. So highly recommend those two. That that one has definitely been on my list, but I, I can't wait for the short story collection. And you had mentioned a um a American campus novel that I lost the title of. Emily it's someone. Emily Layden. Layden. Uh, and it's okay. all, all girls. All and girls. Okay. it's it's again beautifully written. It's so fascinating to me to read a boarding school novel about America because in many ways it feels very foreign. I have a hard time working out what a freshman is. <laughs> like none of this terminology is familiar to me. Yet I absolutely recognised myself and my school experience in that book. And um, Emily and I have subsequently become friends because our books are out at very similar times and share a lot of similar themes. And so it's been really lovely connecting with her and, and talking about where our books are similar. But also differ i mean her her the takeaway from her book is is that a quite a positive one i think about the school the value that these schools can bring while she talks very openly about what they cover up and the secrets they hold i think it ends on an optimistic note whereas i feel like my book was an absolute take down <laughs> of the british <laughs> Uh, I would agree. Probably not getting, probably not getting invited to many reunions after this. Um, uh, do you know the book Black Ice by Lorraine Carey? I don't, but I'm writing it down now. It, it's a remarkable. It's a memoir, um, and it's a uh, about a um, a black student who attends a formerly all white um, boarding school, and it is. It is a takedown of race and privilege in the United States, kind of of uncommon uh, painfulness, um, but it is beautiful. Um, and it's I, I highly, highly recommend it. Oh, I'm putting that on my list. Yeah, I've got my my campus novel list is quite long now. I've got sitting on my stack, um, Catherine House, which I don't know if you read that one, but... I, I haven't. Um, she teaches at my institution, though, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, me too. I haven't. I haven't read it. Yet, but I'm very excited to get to that one. And there was another campus. Oh, prep. I was like, now is the time I can read prep. You have to. I think it is. Okay. It really has a um, a special place. I think in the American scene. Yeah, yeah, no, it's beloved. I think. Well, these are wonderful suggestions. I'm going to put them on our website so that listeners can can reach out and grab them. What I've been trying to do is um, ask uh, my guests about a local bookstore that they want to support, and then I can put links to the to the books you recommend to that store. So if people want to reach out and order books, even if they're not in LA, do you have a bookstore there that you really that you really like? I have to say that one of the most um, magical and teary moments I had was going to sign copies of my book at the wonderful Book Soup in LA, which just felt, it smelt like how all great bookshops should smell. I can't just, I don't know, what is it? There's a slight sort of 
woodworminess about a really good mm-hmm. bookshop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're not the right Denver. Yeah, it's a magical, magical space. And they are just huge supporters of writers and debut writers and have been doing this spectacular job at getting books into the hands of readers at a time where, you know, it's not, it's, people are so reliant on Amazon right now. And it's just book super really just making it very easy for people to get books. Well, Ellie, thank you so much um, for spending time with me today. And I just can't recommend The Divines enough. And this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've loved it. Take care. Well, that's all for me for this time. My huge thanks go to Ellie Eaton, whose novel The Divines, as well as all of her recommended books, are linked to on the podcast website, burnedbybooks.com. I know I, like many others, will be anxiously anticipating her next work. Next episode will feature Gina Nutt, author of a groundbreaking collection of essays, Night Rooms. I hope you'll join me for that interview in late March. As I try to grow a listenership, I want to express my deepest thanks to those of you who have been regular and loyal listeners to this homegrown show. I think of each of you as I petition new guests and put together future shows. You have my love and my thanks. Until next time. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.